Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Who is Jesus? That is the ultimate question. How you respond to that question determines your eternity. As Ken Pretty has told us this week in our 50 Days devotional, Jesus is the dividing line. Belief in Him leads to life, while disbelief leads to death. Who is Jesus? I can't emphasize how important that question is, but before we get into our text from Matthew and hear Peter's answer again, let me remind you that the Gospels are telling about, they are describing events in Jesus' life as they happened. That means we get the people's honest wrestlings. You see, the Gospels themselves were written at least 30 years beyond the events that they describe. So they were written well after the resurrection of Jesus, but as they look back, they're remembering how they felt at the time. Out of the four Gospels, it's Matthew and, and John that were two of the original 12, and so they are eyewitnesses to everything of Jesus' public ministry. Those three years they traveled with, they saw miraculous signs, they heard Jesus' teachings. Mark, just to give you a background on each of them, Mark writes from a little different perspective. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's referred to as John Mark. But he also had firsthand knowledge of Peter and of Peter's sermons. Luke, you may know something about him over the last three years that we did his, his gospel, was a medical doctor also a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and wrote his gospel after tracking down eyewitnesses. And so he interviewed the people who had these encounters with Jesus. What was it like? What do you remember? What happened? How were you changed by this meeting with Jesus? Ours is from Matthew, the text this morning. Leading up to Matthew chapter 16, about the only recognition of who Jesus was to the disciples was a disclaimer several chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 8, when they referred to Him as Lord, but it was used in more of a foxhole prayer kind of way, as in, Lord, I don't know if I believe in You fully, but if You'll get me out of this, I will. You see, they were on a boat when a storm all of a sudden arose upon them, and in their fear, they cried out, Lord, save us. Not necessarily a prayer of faith. The next time that Matthew records the disciples' declaration of who Jesus is, is our text from Matthew chapter 16. We pick up there, the story goes... When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Again, that title, Son of Man, is a distinction from the Old Testament book of Daniel, Jesus using that for Himself. 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus knew what they were about to declare. I mean, believe me, when several times in the gospel Jesus reads people's minds, He certainly knows what others think of Him, but He was starting to stir the hearts of the disciples so that they could start to voice, declare, and believe for themselves. Well, they replied, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So this is the disciples saying what the crowd is saying, the crowd, those not in the know. There were a, a, a number of different answers as to who Jesus was, the point being the crowd did not fully know who Jesus was. They didn't fully understand. It's like many people today. Some people today would say Jesus was a good, moral man who taught good things to the world. Even religions outside of Christianity have knowledge of Jesus, but they say that He was a prophet of God, not the Son of God, not the same as God. And there are people today who go so far as to say Jesus was not even a real person. And they have not thought about the fact that there were many historical evidences outside of Scripture proving that there was a person named Jesus who lived in Palestine in the first century doing miraculous signs and teaching people about God. You see, the world has all sorts of thoughts about who Jesus is. The most important question, though, is what Jesus posed next. But what about you, he asked who do you say I am? Now, before we hear an answer from anyone in the band of the disciples, it's important to know the context in which this question is asked. Mark and Luke, two of the other four Gospels, have sided with Matthew and that all three put this encounter, these, these questions that Jesus is asking of His disciples in the same location, in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And here's why that's important. Because Caesarea Philippi is a very religious town. It's just that there's not much there to lift up the name of the one true God. About the only thing of significance to God's people in the town of Caesarea Philippi is that the headwaters of the Jordan River, one of the, one of the headwaters is located in Caesarea Philippi. But beyond that, this town, Caesarea Philippi, was a mainstay of practically every Greek and Roman religion and worship center. There were temples and shrines and statues galore everywhere you looked. Ask any inhabitant of the city of Caesarea Philippi, whom do you worship? Who's your God? And they'll just point to structures and, and busts of gods and say, well, that one or, or this one's my God. How incredibly important in the midst of that, that Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answers on behalf of the twelve, you are the Messiah, the 
the Son of the living God. Messiah. God's Christ. Jesus Christ. That's not his last name, by the way. It's a title. Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, it means anointed one. You see, the disciples understood that Jesus is more than a man, more than a prophet. Jesus is the anointed one. This is the picture of kingship, that He is the anointed king, anointed by the Father to bring deliverance and restoration and salvation. The disciples get that much. How did Jesus receive Peter's response? Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then Jesus gives us that Presbyterian command. He ordered His disciples to tell no one that He was the Messiah. It's the one command we get right. Don't tell anyone. Okay, I wasn't going to. We're working on that. And I've got more to say about that in a few moments. We'll get back to it. The text goes on to say, and so I, I'm, I'm giving you a larger context in which this story from Matthew fits in. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This, by the way, is the first time that Matthew records. He'll do it a total of four times. But this is the first time that Matthew records the coming suffering of Jesus. And Jesus wants His disciples to know that His kingship and His messiahship are not going to go like they think. Jesus is not going to overthrow Rome like they think He will. Jesus is not going to rule from Jerusalem like they think He will. Jesus wants to make this point very clear. He is going to suffer, be rejected by the leaders, be killed, and then be raised on the third day. Now, this is important because it means that Jesus knew what would happen. The rejection of Jesus and His kingdom was not a surprise to Him. Jesus is already predicting how things are going to go. It's going to be necessary for Him to suffer, to be killed and be raised for Him to be the Messiah that we need, a Savior who delivers us from our sins. Jesus was not going to walk the path of popularity, but of rejection and humiliation. His road to ultimately receive glory as King and Messiah had to go through the cross. Now, Peter cannot fathom that at this moment. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, 
Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus is going to announce the requirements of following Him. He said to His disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In other words, following Christ requires a high commitment. Anything less than that is not okay with God. He continues, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul, for the Son of Man? Again, he's speaking of himself. It's going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What is Jesus saying? To follow Him means we can no longer live for just ourselves. I don't mean this as funny, but it's a lot like marriage. The worst thing you can do in a marriage is be selfish. Think only about yourself, what you want, what your passions are. You want to make sure there's little chance for your marriage to survive? Then lead as independent of a life of your spouse as you possibly can. It's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. You want to find real joy in the commitment? then bring Him into every facet of life. Think about how much of a difference we could make in our marriages, our families, our churches, our communities, if we were sold out for Jesus. If all of our commitments were accountable to Him, if we lived in such a way that we would never be ashamed of Him or of His words that we would lay ourselves on the altar of obedience and go public with our faith. You see, whatever that earlier verse about telling no one was all about back then, which really was Jesus saying, look, my time has not yet come. Don't go sharing about me to all the curiosity seekers who's going to think that I'm just a, a circus act. That was then. But after the cross and Jesus' resurrection, things completely changed. Now, it's all about what Jesus told His followers in Acts 1.8, to be His witnesses. And the rest of the book of Acts is exactly that. It's the disciples going public with the good news message of Jesus Christ. And so I want to speak on that topic, and it goes hand in hand with what Ken Pretty is leading us to talk about in these last few weeks of the 50 Days to Vitality devotional, which by the way, if you don't have one yet, or maybe your first time with us this morning, uh, some copies of that are on a table as you could leave. It's just a spiral-bound booklet that we're giving to you. It was, it's 50 days that we're following through to revitalize the church to see things of our church the way that God would will them for us. Several years ago, I was in a discussion with someone about their faith. 
And they were adamant when they said, I keep my faith private. It shouldn't be public. I said, no, it's personal. It's got to mean something to you, but it's not private. But in fact, we live in a day when everyone is okay with your Christian faith as long as it's private, not public. As long as it doesn't intrude on others' lives. Okay, how many of you on social media aren't really putting Jesus out there? Don't raise your hands. Or you're at work and, and yet again, Christianity is the pinata getting all the wax on some social or moral issue. You're a student in a public institution, and all of a sudden they're talking about Christianity, and it's not positive. Who saw that coming, right? And this is where you raise your hand and you say, hey, since we're talking about Jesus as a Christian, I would like to talk about Jesus since you brought it up. And since we're all wanting to practice tolerance and diversity, I'm giving you an opportunity to put that into practice right now. Let's talk about Jesus. There may be several reasons why you don't go public with your faith. I have a hunch as to the number one reason. You don't want to get persecuted. What did they do to the Apostle Peter? Tradition says they crucified him upside down. Who did he worship? Crucified Jesus. How's it going to go for you? Probably really bad. That's not much of a sales pitch, right? <laughs> hey, take this product, it'll explode on you. <laughs> but here's the big idea. Somebody went public for you. You didn't know Jesus, and somebody who knew Jesus talked to you about Jesus. They went public for you, you go public for someone else. You see, the goal is not to escape life without persecution. The goal is to escape life with as many converts as you can. To take as many people with you who love Jesus as possible. You never know when you're going to have an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. You never know when you're going to have an opportunity to pray for someone, to answer someone's questions, to talk to someone about God and about Jesus and what He's done and what, what the cross is all about. You just never know, right? See, there are opportunities all the time. Maybe you're at work and someone says, I got diagnosed with cancer. Can I pray for you? How can I serve you? Or go deeper. Where are you with God? Or deeper still, do you know that we worship a God who suffered? And then you need to know this. The Bible promises that the Holy Spirit will empower you to speak courageously about Jesus. Let me give you one illustration from the Bible Let's talk about Peter since he played a pretty prominent role in this Matthew 16 passage. When later we see Peter again in the book of Acts, he is preaching publicly about Jesus. He's at the temple. He's at the marketplace to people who don't agree with him. Pretty courageous, right? 
Was Peter always that courageous? Was he a guy, you, you look at him, you look at his life, and you say, of course Peter was courageous. Look at the cape flying in the wind behind him. He was Peter the courageous, Peter the lion-hearted. He was ready for battle. But he wasn't always like that. He started out as a coward. When they arrested Jesus and they were trying him, they were going to crucify him, Peter was following him. But the Bible says at a distance. Why is Peter so far away from Jesus when he's going to be crucified? Because Peter is not signing up for suffering. He's warming himself by a fire as Jesus is some distance away. He's trying to remain anonymous. He's trying to not go public with his faith. He's going to keep it private. The people around him start chatting and I guess Peter chimes in and, and someone <laughs> that's a weird accent. Hey, where are you from? From the south with us down here in Jerusalem? I don't, I don't think so. That sounds more like a rural accent. Are, are you from Galilee? Hey, isn't Jesus from Galilee? Didn't I see you with him? And what does Peter reply? Three different denials. I don't know him, I never met him, and then he starts cursing. That was just in hours around the cross. Just a few weeks later, Peter is preaching in public about Jesus against all opposition. What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit filled him. I don't have to tell you this. We live in an increasingly hostile culture to Christianity, and the Holy Spirit is going to need to empower us to talk about Jesus. And you might say, that's right. As soon as I feel that courage, I'll start talking. But that's not necessarily how it works. Speak, and then the courage comes. The courage comes as you speak, not before necessarily, because it's got to be about faith. Okay, I'm going to talk about Jesus now. I'm not sure how this is all going to go. I'm not sure that I'm, you know, where I'm, what's going to come out of my mouth. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to begin to talk about Jesus. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will empower me to say the right words and have the courage to endure no matter what happens as a result of talking about Jesus. And let me say a word about those we will encounter who are our non-Christian friends. There's a whole lot we disagree on, Christians and non-Christians, especially in, in this moral, spiritual, cultural climate in which we live. Because for the most part, a non-Christian begins with this assumption. I'm basically a good person. I don't need to change who I am. Maybe I need to improve a little, but I'm basically a good person. And all I need is to be loved, accepted, and approved of the person that I am. And if you are to tell me I'm wrong, that's hateful. If you are to tell me that I need to change, that's intolerant. If you are to say that some of what I feel or like or believe in is unacceptable, that's unloving. But you see, as Christians, our highest authority is God, not us. 
and we confer with the timeless Scriptures, not the timely preferences. And we believe that we are most in need of change because sin has infected and affected everything and everyone. And the Bible summarizes all this in one word. It's the word repentance. Repentance is looking at your life and realizing you've been living for yourself and knowing that God now has for you so much more. That's actually a very loving thing to consider. In fact, it's the most loving thing because what's behind it is a God who died for you. And after being raised from death, wants you to hear, I will forgive you and embrace you and change you. And that's what repentance is, an invitation to be embraced by the love of Jesus. And here's the truth about the love of Jesus. Jesus' love takes you as you are, but refuses to allow you to remain that way. So you come to Jesus as you are, but coming to Jesus means you are acknowledging that you need to change, and that's repentance. And the Scripture then gives us this great promise for those who need refreshing. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent then. And turn to God. That's what repentance is. You've been going your way. You've been living life your way. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Don't you want to be refreshed? Doesn't that sound like an awesome concept? Here's the dictionary definition of refresh. It's to give new strength or energy to. Here are some of its synonyms. Reinvigorate. Revitalize. Aha. Uh-huh. Revive. Restore. Fortify. Enliven. Stimulate. Energize. Exhilarate. And Scripture's saying to us, are you weary? Maybe it's because you've been trying to live life on your own. Come to Jesus Christ, God's anointed, our deliverer, our restorer. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.